Skycast episode 15, a podcast dedicated to all things The 100. I'm Brittany Perlman. And I'm Sarah McCabe. And today we'll be discussing the long-awaited, highly anticipated season 5 premiere, Eden. We're back, bitches! Yes, we are. (laughs) So before we dive in, we always uh, talk a little bit about our overall feelings for the show. Welcome back, Skycast crew. Yes. Um, What did you think about this episode, our season 5 premiere? Um, I have, so I have a few things to say. I think first and foremost, when I was watching it first on, on Tuesday, it was like, I couldn't even process what was happening. Um, I think we both kind of felt this way. It was just like, it was back, but I like, it wasn't dawning on me that it was back. So I was watching things, but just not really taking them all in. Um, so we watched it again today and I think I enjoyed it a lot more that time around. Um, the second thing is that nothing about this episode really surprised me no um which isn't a bad thing I think you know a lot of the like early preseason buzz had been very focused on where all of these characters are when we first meet them so it, it was kind of like so I, I know where they all are <laughs> so it was it was yeah. like watching something that I've already seen but just didn't really remember like the details of that's kind of what this episode felt like yeah it was more of a confirmation of what we already knew an affirmation of what we already knew rather than what I think the rest of the season will be which will be a lot of twists and turns and surprises which we love yeah um, and then and then third for me I while I do I did really enjoy this episode and I'm very 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 excited for this season um it was like I had this weird feeling throughout the whole episode that I think we're meant to have but it was like you know as much as I was really happy to see all these characters again because I'd missed them so much I also felt like this weird sense of like mourning or or almost being like left out um just because all of these characters have kind of moved on and formed new relationships um that we didn't get to see and so like when we meet them again I just feel like oh they 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 moved on without me (laughs) yeah I, I can completely understand that I had a really similar experience in that I mean you'll hear this from both of us we are really busy we have very um demanding jobs I travel a lot for work and I You know, we both recently went on a trip to Scotland, um, which was amazing. Amazing. Um, And then I got pneumonia, which is a lot of TMI (laughs) that you don't need to know about. But then my parents and my siblings came into town. All of this is to say that I didn't have like a minute to like sit down and process what was going to be the premiere until I was sitting down watching it, which is not an ideal experience for me. I really like to like soak with this stuff before and like be ready, like an optimized viewing experience. And I just didn't have that. So again, when I watched it the second time around, it was way, way better than Mm -hmm. the way I remembered it. I I was actually a little alarmed. I didn't know how to do this podcast after watching it the first time with the way that I felt about it because I was so, I had such a weird reaction. It was just unsettling. It was. um, And I did want to point out that I'll, periodically through this podcast, I'm going to point out places where I felt particularly like jarred or like, uncomfortable there there were some editing techniques in this um episode that I I didn't really love um and they were intentional but it wasn't my it wasn't the way that I enjoy watching and so I think as far as premieres go this wasn't my favorite um but there was nothing really wrong with it um but I but with that said I mean it's still an episode of the hundred I'm so glad to be back there's so much to unpack here um and I'm really excited to talk about it I think as far as premieres go, this one actually might be my favorite. Just thinking about it, I don't know. Season two was also a really great premiere, but I I, I really liked 
I think what this premiere, premiere sets up for this season. Um, and I like if if I had taken all of my my earlier knowledge out and just watched it kind of with fresh eyes, I think I would have been. I think I would have loved this even more. Not that I would ever, ever not like go as deep into the spoiler territory as I could. <laughs> that is not who I am. Never gonna happen. Um, I think I'm. I think there's no way to know this for sure, but I'm anticipating that because this episode had a lot of work to do as far as setup mm-hmm. and and setting the scene. I think the rest of the se- season is gonna be phenomenal. So excited! And I, I actually think this might probably be like one of the the worst episodes of the season just because it had a lot of setup to do mm-hmm. and generally speaking setup episodes it's funny because we just also watched Westworld and I have like a similar complaint about that <laughs> episode but it's true that the first episode of the season has has to do a lot of things that they don't have to do um you know writing wise yeah like especially after a time jump At, right it, particularly after a time jump there's a lot of character work that has to go into this there's a lot of sets that have to be explored there's there's a whole new I mean it's like basically starting over Mm -hmm. um and so it just doesn't leave as much room for story unfortunately um but with that said again I did like it I did enjoy it a lot and I'm really really happy and excited to talk about it yeah me too do you want to start (laughs) um oh we want to do the uh the rate review thing yeah we should do that this is a reminder guys please take a second and go onto itunes and rate and review us um it helps other fans of the hundred find us so please and thank you very much and with that we will go straight to the recap we're gonna open up woo uh, we start this season, we kind of open up on the ring, it's sitting there in the dark for whatever reason, they are sitting there in the dark, not going to get into that. Uh, then we zoom through the ring and go down to Earth. It is officially 42 days after Prime Faya, and we see Clark climbing her way out of Becca's lab for the first time. Um, the world around her is just totally dead, and what used to be an ocean is now just like more desert. Um, so Clark takes out a map and figures out that Polis is about 210 miles away. Uh, but, you know, at least she doesn't have to swim. Uh, our girl's got this. She does. Also, how does Clark look this good after enduring <laughs> radiation poisoning and 42 days of being buried alive? I mean, she just looks amazing. Yeah, I, well, I mean, you know, Becca's lab, I think it was a really nice setup in there. There was probably a shower somewhere, definitely some medical supplies. Maybe she's able to, like, shampoo a little bit. Um, she's had some time to rest and recuperate, and now she is ready to go, ready to cross the desert. You think there was running water that still worked after the apocalypse? Okay, you know, I am going to choose to believe that it does, because otherwise, I don't think Clark could possibly be alive right now, unless there was, like, a huge hidden stack of water bottles somewhere in Becca's lab. Touche. Moving on. Um, there's there's definitely a lot of food and water questions that I'm just going to have to get past, uh, namely the fact that she goes outside, and the entire ocean appears to have evaporated, and yet you're telling me that she has this like tiny little water bottle, and it lasts her all the way until it rains later on in the episode, which is like a month later. Um, I, I don't know where she's getting her water, but I'm just, I'm going to be the bigger person here, Jason, and I'm going to let that go. I'm going to move on. I think this is a good moment, actually, in this first scene of the first episode episode to state that for the remainder of this podcast we will ignore all food water related plot holes otherwise we're just going to be here forever yeah that's cute um that's not true at all I will not be ignoring things but I will try to keep it at a minimum yeah we're gonna try and and move past these try food and water related plot holes try being the operative word yeah (laughs) yeah 
Um, so Clark starts trekking across the desert, and there is lots of desert. There's lots of brown uh, until she reaches the spot where she left the rover and is able to kind of dig it out. Then she is on her way to Polis and style, um, specifically Mad Max style, you know, ginormous dust storms and all. <laughs> um, so my question is, how exactly did she know where the rover was? Interesting. That was my question to you. I have no idea. I'm at a loss. Um, I, I mean, to me, it looks like she's using the, the cairns that are sticking out of the sand as the way to measure where she put it. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of confused why those cairns are even there. Like, they thought they were going into space. So did they make those cairns as if they were, like, planning to come back after five years and then, like, head straight to the rover? Or I, I know. It's, it's really confusing. Um, I don't, she seems like to know exactly where to find it. Like, the cairns... They reminded me of the Cairns we saw on the beach when Bellamy and Clark like drank the potion to go to Luna's barge in season three, episode 13. But I cannot for the life of me figure out why she'd park the rover there. Yeah. Yeah. It makes no sense to me that the rover would have been left there. Um, maybe she just got the Karen idea from that as a way to like mark the spot. But I don't know if we're ever going to get the answer to that, unfortunately. So yeah, the world will never know. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so Clark finally reaches Polis and it is dead. Like all caps, bold, underlined. There's only ruins left. And as Clark climbs up some rocks to get a better view, she sees the remains of the Polis Tower now totally destroyed. So to me, this is the most haunting scene in the episode because, you know, we know Polis as this, this bustling city. It's full of life. It's full of death. Um, but now it's just empty and cold and gray and you know Clark mentions that her seeing Arcadia is the first time that she really feels alone but I think that this scene is the first time that I really feel the weight of the apocalypse totally it's interesting because I think this is the first time Clark realizes this is going to be tougher than she had originally imagined and watching her take in this scene you can see her bracing herself like she's toughening up in real time as we're watching her look at polis for the first time mm -hmm. like she, she's had such a rough history with polis um but it's 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 clear that it's just now kind of dawning on her how much she's lost and, and really how much everyone has lost yeah this whole civilization basically totally like it's there's no way to imagine what the apocalypse would look like and it's just it's shocking like clark is shook clark is shook um, and then we jump right into the new fancy opening credits. I was so excited to see these opening credits. Um, there is a lot of stuff that's the same, but there are subtle differences and they are really interesting choices. Um, for example, most of the shots are identical, but they've gone in and added little fires to everything. So everything is on fire. That's a really nice touch. Um, we also see now that what used to be Ali's drone footage is now the Allegis mining cameras surveying the ground footage. And I also really appreciated the digital imprints of the structures that were destroyed in Prime Faya, namely the Polis Tower at the end. That last shot looks like a ghost tower and it's really haunting and, and really, really cool. Absolutely. Um, and it's kind of a, an interesting juxtaposition against the scene that we just watched where we right. see that tower and right. then, you know. Yeah. Um, but, but I absolutely love these new credits. You know, the show was revamped with the time jump, so it just makes sense that these opening credits are revamped as well. Um, a huge question I have here, though, is whether Isaiah Washington is a season regular this season after all, uh, because it had been announced last year that he wasn't coming back as one, but his name is still in the credits, so I'm not exactly sure, um, especially because I'd been uh, convinced that Octavia kills him in episode two as part of her like transformation into this Red Queen, um, and honestly, I'm still pretty sure that's going to happen. 
But if that does, are they going to take his name out of the credits or, you know? They have done that for other shows, you know, where they remove the name of the title credits midway through the season. It just depends on the actor's contract, honestly. That's true. Um, but revising opening credits can be a little expensive, which is why it's usually only done. Um, it's usually only like confirmed season regulars who get a spot on the uh, in the credits. Uh, but maybe the showrunners were willing to take on that extra expense so we could have Isaiah in there one more time. I don't know. I don't know. The, the 100 is a huge success now. Haven't you heard? <laughs> they can afford it. They got a huge marketing campaign, ton of press. The 100 is enjoying a nice moment of popularity. Yeah, um, it's it's basically become the new Game of Thrones, right? <laughs> Budget and all. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Just um, like Game of Thrones. Just like Game of Thrones. <laughs> uh, we flash back to Clark, who is desperately trying to move the rocks covering the bunker door and get the attention of the people below. Um, for days she digs, and it doesn't seem to be making a huge difference. She does end up finding a piece of Lexa's throne one day as she's digging, and she takes one of the, the pieces of wood to look at it more closely, which ends up causing a massive cave-in, burying the bunker deep in the remains of the building. So, you know, even if Clark had a shot before of getting in, she certainly isn't now. Um, and I couldn't figure out if the bunker was already trapped underneath a, you know, a bunch of rubble, uh, or if Clark is the one who essentially dooms them by causing this cave-in. Did you figure that out from that scene? No, but I was honestly wondering the exact same thing. I feel like it'd be sort of poetic irony if Clark was the reason they got stuck in there, narratively speaking. Like, I can almost see Jason twirling his mustache (laughs) thinking about this. Yeah, that, um, that would be some poetic irony, but I would hate the thought that Clark carries more of this guilt around her for trapping her mother down there because like the girl can't catch a break oh absolutely i mean that would be horrifying but very on par for this show very on par <laughs> um as as jason rothenberg always says the show's a tragedy um but but still like how much can one person carry of course as i'm saying this you know when it comes to clark the limit apparently does not exist no she's wonder woman <laughs> Um, we now pick up with Clark talking on the radio to Bellamy, as we saw her doing at the end of the last season. Uh, she, she has to face the fact that she could dig for years and never reach this bunker door. So instead, she heads to Arcadia to see if there's anything there to scavenge. And upon seeing Arcadia, that is the first time for her that she really feels alone. And she wonders if there was any point to them coming down if this is what they're left with. I think it's really interesting to note the exact point at which Clark starts talking, quote unquote, to Bellamy. I know she's convinced herself that she's talking to him, but really she's talking to herself. You know, it's like her loneliness becomes more and more evident with each passing scene, as is her desperation. Like the tougher the situation becomes, the more she communicates to Bellamy as a coping mechanism, but also as a means to maintain sanity. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, I think the hope of Bellamy being out there somewhere, and, and really like all of Space Crew, um, that hope is really the only thing that's keeping her going. And not only because she misses them desperately, but also because I think she's realized at this point that you know she's going to need their help if they're ever going to rescue the people that she's just trapped in the bunker. Because mm-hmm. um, she can't do it alone. No. Um, So we get a scene uh, with Clark drinking the rest of her water from the tiny little water bottle she's been carrying since she slept Becca's lab, and she wonders how the hell she's going to make it five more years. And to be honest, although I have nothing but respect for my president, Clark Griffin, um, I am also wondering the same thing, because the obstacles that she is facing right now just kind of seem insurmountable agreed it's amazing that she lasts as long as she does before contemplating suicide because at this point honestly i'd be like well i did my best i'm done now like 
Bye-bye. <laughs> same. Uh, same. But it, it takes a lot more than that to break Clark, as we see. Uh, but it is possible. It's hard, but it's possible. She is a survivor through and through. She is. So as Clark digs through the Arcadia wreckage for more things she can use, she ends up finding a case with Maya's MP3 player and Jasper's goggles and his suicide letter to Monty, and she breaks down in tears. I just want to note that I've now found through years of scientific research that when Clark cries, I also cry. (laughs) It's a biological reflex at this point. (laughs) I mean, when Clark cries, we all cry because she only cries in her like most traumatic moments. And we are so invested in her as a character and her struggles that her her trauma is our trauma, you know? Yeah. Um, It's it's interesting to me that this is the first time we've seen her cry since coming out of Becca's lab. She's out of water. She's out of hope. um, And she's just found the last pieces of her friend who she loved and never got to say goodbye to. Um, you know, there's nothing left for Clark to do here about grieve. And I think she's not just grieving for Jasper, but she's also grieving for all the people that she's lost and hasn't really been able to fully grieve up for up until this point because she's been so busy trying to save the world and not die. Yeah, and it's the first time her resolve is truly tested, you know, since she left the, the Becca's lab when she's faced with the ghosts of her past, so to speak, and all the people she's lost along the way. This is like a haunting reminder of what she still faces, and she's facing it all alone. You know, this is a rare moment of pure vulnerability that we see in Clark and it's absolutely devastating. This is also the first scene that we get hints that Clark may be having suicidal thoughts or at least isn't totally opposed to it given that she wonders if Jasper had the right idea. Um, she's she's experienced so much pain and so much suffering and it's only brought her more pain and suffering. Uh, so, you know, any sane pace, uh, person having having faced what she's faced and, and landed where she is right now, um, anyone would have to wonder what the point was of any of this. Yeah, and it is a nice tip to the audience that connects this scene to the suicide scene um, planting seeds early on that play out later we can see that like so many of her fallen comrades particularly Jasper that this is the kind of trauma um, and facing these overwhelming obstacles will take a toll on someone's mental health and I always appreciate that the show doesn't shy away from that reality yeah I agree Uh, so Clark doesn't really think Bellamy can hear her on the as she puts it quote-unquote piece of crap radio she's using Um, but she has to say this not just for him but for herself she doesn't want Bellamy to feel bad about leaving her on earth because he did what he had to do and she's proud of him for doing it Woof. <laughs> there is that uh, infamous pause. It's the Clark and Bellamy signature move when talking to each other. <laughs> Seriously, this sentence could have ended so differently. How about an I love you? Anything? <laughs> <laughs> um, do you think there's any part of her that is upset that they left her here? Like, you know, like a very, very tiny part of her that isn't totally practical. I honestly don't think so. If it were you or me, I would say sure. But Clark Griffin is a rare bird indeed. And I think she genuinely believes that they left at the last moment or they would have all perished. And I think it comforts her to believe there is a possibility that they're out there alive somewhere. Yeah. If it were me, I'd be so glad that they left so that they could live. Um, but there would be a part of me that would feel really hurt. Um, as, you know, as I was already preparing for them to become a much closer family over the next five years without me. And it would be completely illogical, and I'd know this, but I would still feel it anyway. And I think that Clark might also feel that way as well given that she's you know she's talking to herself on this radio even though she's addressing Bellamy Um, and that basically means that she is telling herself that they shouldn't feel bad for leaving her and in some ways I I think that Clark is trying to keep up a dialogue with her friends not just so that she doesn't go crazy but also so that she can make herself feel included in some small way 
Yeah, I really like that idea. I don't know if that's necessarily resentment that they left her, um, but just truly like a human fear of being left out and a result of being unbearably lonely. Oh, yeah, I definitely wouldn't say she resents them. Um, but I do, I could see her being subconsciously upset. I think they're, yeah. they're like two different things. Sad. Yeah, but like more than sad. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so Clark keeps driving, although we have no idea where she's going, um, because, you know, where else is there to go at this point? She is listening to Maya's MP3 player along the way, which gives us a really fantastic soundtrack to Clark's travels. Yeah, she's rocking out. It's really awesome. Um, but the world out there is totally dead. There, there's like really nothing left. And the further that Clark drives, the more that sinks in. And I actually, um, I saw somewhere that Jason said that they went to a forest that had just had a forest fire for these scenes to film. Um, so everything that we're seeing is real and not CGI. And I think that really amps this up in terms of quality. The landscape, it's just, it's so cold and so empty. And it is stunningly beautiful in this like really terrifying way. I'm so glad you brought this up because I was going to ask you, where did they film this? <laughs> I love the way this show is dedicated to these details and that they don't rely on CGI because this is so... So tangible and it does such a great job of conveying the realness of this place and the reality of it yeah the show um it's definitely had its moments of bad cgi yes, as, it has. as as all <laughs> sci-fi shows must have at some point um but i really appreciate the hundreds dedication to building sets and props and scenes that feel feel real and alive instead of relying on cgi to fill in the blanks um the details that they put into these scenes is is really incredible and it kind of reminds me in in one of the many many differences in quality between um the original lord of the rings movies and the new hobbit films hmm. because in the the old lord of the rings movies they they use people in makeup and prosthetics for the orcs and so much of their props were like handmade like the chainmail was like all handmade um and in the hobbit instead they used cgi for everything and it looked fake and terrible and those movies were awful so so even though creating these things by hand takes time the quality really does show in the end and the hundred has always been stand out in that sense even when they were working on a a very very limited budget as they probably still are agree all game of thrones jokes aside and they have <laughs> such an incredible crew that produces this amazing amount of props and sets and design work. I mean, it's just incredible. Yeah. Um, as Clark drives, things start to get a little bit better for her. First, it rains, and it's not like acid rain like I was expecting because I definitely cringed when she went outside for a moment. Yeah, I, I jerked up. I was like, no, don't <laughs> go outside. Are you crazy? Um, if there's one trope that the hundred sticks to, it's people outside like reveling in the rain. You know, we got it in season one with Raven. We got it last season with Jasper. Also in season one with um, Bellamy and the, what, what, what were they saying? It's a chaos or... <laughs> oh, yeah. What was it? We have, we don't need rules or something. Chaos. What's wrong with a little chaos? What's wrong with a little chaos? <laughs> um, and then Jasper last season. Uh, and then here we are again. Yeah, there's a lot of callbacks to past seasons, um, but we'll get to those later. Yeah, definitely. Um, in the next scene, Clark notices bugs are hitting her windshield, and so she climbs out of her car and starts eating the bugs squashed on the rover. This was disgusting <laughs> and so badass at the same time. Like, I knew it was coming as soon as that bug hit the window, and yet it was still hard to stomach watching her eat that. It was super gross, and it just made me love her even more. Like, if that's possible, I, I loved her more. <laughs> yeah. She's a bamf. She is a bamf. 
Um, Clark sees a dust storm coming, and when she tries to take the solar panels off, one ends up blowing away. Eventually, she has to get back in the rover and wait out the storm, and when it's over, she finds the solar panels all broken. So she checks her map and figures out how far the solar fields are and starts walking. But she, uh, before she leaves the rover, she dares the world that if it thinks it can kill her, it can have at it. And of course, as, you know, true TV shows are, the world takes up her challenge. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she basically just pointed her middle finger at the universe and was like, F you. And it will now do- proceed to do its worst. <laughs> yeah, and it happens, you know, pretty much immediately as far as we can see. She's um, making her way across the desert. And at some point, she just can't go any further. She she drops her walking stick. She drops the goggles. And she, like, falls to the ground unconscious. And I did want to point out that I love how she's been using these pieces from her fallen friends for and lover um, for strength. Um, you know, like Maya's MP3 player, which kept her company on her drives. And we have Jasper's goggles, which protected her from the sand and from the sun. And then, of course, we have um, the piece of Lexa's throne that she was using as a walking stick. So, you know, in some way, like leaning on Lexa when it was too hard to stand herself. Um, it was lovely. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's also important to, to note that, she, you know, just as she used these things to help her survive, now that she's at the end of her rope and she can't hold on to them anymore, um, she discards them. Them. she's given up completely and she's dropping these pieces and it's just a really nice visualization of that metaphor yeah uh and what wakes clark up but a buzzard eating her arm did you did this remind you of the scene in the lion king <laughs> <laughs> i mean actually yeah that's that's actually like all i could think about in this scene um she needs like timon and pumba to come in and come to her rescue <laughs> yeah seriously um but seriously buzzard could you at like least wait until i'm dead slow your roll you know <laughs> Uh, can we just say like how traumatizing it would be to be to wake up being eaten by something that's supposed to feed on the dead? Um, I think to Clark, that's just an indication there, like how close she really is to death. Yeah, yeah, she's she's at the end of the line here. Um, Clark shakes the buzzard off, but as it takes off, she starts following it, hoping it will lead her to where it lives. But as she crests the top of the dune, she sees only more desert, and then she slips and falls to the bottom of the dune again, and at this point, Clark is done. And we get some Emmy-level acting from Eliza Taylor. This is the lowest of the low point for her, both mentally and physically. Again, symbolized perfectly by her falling down this sandy dune. It's obvious that she can't take another moment in this agony. And at this point, she's only prolonging her inevitable death. Yeah, you know, we heard a spoiler before this season began that Clark would come close to killing herself at some point. And honestly, I was having a hard time envisioning how that would happen. Um, the Clark that I know never dwells on pain. She always you know, takes it and uses it to fuel her drive to survive. And that drive to survive is always there. Um, and even though she was alone here, I kept wondering, you know, why she'd end up wanting to end her life when she still should have the hope that her friends would be coming back from space and that they'd help her open the bunker and, you know, get her mom again. Um, but I do understand here at this point when she takes out the gun and points it at her head that I, I, I get why she almost chooses to kill herself at this moment because she really does have nothing left there is no hope for survival and in Clark's mind I think she would rather make the choice to die herself than have that choice made for her agreed this choice is the only thing she has left as she says she's had everything taken away from her at this point and she's also smart enough to know what's in store for her if she continues on you know dying of starvation and dehydration and a heat wave is is not a fun way to go oh yeah she'd die from dehydration much much quicker than starvation (laughs) she has all of the things well, that's what I'm she's saying. dying like, from dehydration. all of the things. 
Kick kill her off her. in like a day, you know? Oh no, she has hours at this point. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, but, but before Clark can pull the trigger, the bl- the the blizzard, <laughs> the buzzard flies over her again. One last hope. So she chases after it, climbs another dune, and before her, down in the valley, is salvation. Mm-hmm. It is Eden. It is the last garden on earth, literally. <laughs> Clearly, um, well named. Yeah. She she takes the buzzard. She tells it thank you for leading her to this place, and then she kills it because my girl. <laughs> Um, this scene is amazing the whole way through. From the moment that Clark wakes up uh, to find the buzzard eating her to to right now when she discovers Eden, we go through this powerful range of emotions alongside Clark, and it's it's just it's stunning to watch. It is, and Eliza's acting is unparalleled. Watching her eyes fill up with tears as she thanks the vulture, and then seeing her face transform into resolution before she pulls the trigger, it's amazing. <laughs> Honestly, someone give her an Emmy, or nominate her for an <laughs> Emmy even. I don't care. <laughs> this moment when she shoots the thing that just saved her life marks the beginning of a new Clark, one that has a new perspective on the rules of survival, which she will monologue about in about one minute so we'll get into it later um i i don't know how many times when i was watching this episode that i said like my girl (laughs) um because i know i've gushed before about how much i love clark but this episode has really been a showcase of all of her best qualities you know the way she takes every single opportunity that comes her way to survive um that is why she is such an amazing character and also why some people in the fandom don't like her, because when it comes to survival, Clark's going to do what's necessary, even if it's not the nice thing. Yeah, I mean, and I like it that the show is pivoting and really putting her into central focus. Like, she is our main character. She is our hero. She is our protagonist. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. But she might not be a good guy, <laughs> which we'll get to in a second. There are no good guys. <laughs> Um, Clark used to think that life was about more than just surviving, but now she is not so sure anymore. Um, as she says, animals don't feel guilty when they kill, they just do. Clark has told herself that every life she took was for a reason, but when she really thinks about it, all of her enemies had reasons too. In the end, everyone just wanted to survive. So this was the monologue I was just referencing, and it's going to set up a new Clark for the rest of the season and the rest of her life. Yeah, I mean, in this moment that Clark eats the buzzard that just saved her life, we see her worldview kind of coming full circle. Um, in early seasons, it was all about it was all about who the drive to survive makes you become. And in the later seasons, it was more about what will you do to survive, and 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 you know she'll do whatever it takes, and then just deal with the consequences later, both external and emotional. Uh, but here, she's coming to the realization that this world is either kill or be killed, and she would much rather kill than be killed, so to speak. Um, so it's it, it's interesting. Clark mentions that animals don't feel guilt here. Um, do we think that, that she's maybe going to become a little bit more animalistic in this season in her quest for survival and, and also her quest to keep Maddie alive? Yeah, I was actually just going to say that I think we'll see this play out, especially in her relationship to Maddie. I mean, she we refer to her already as like the mama bear. Bear is an animal. <laughs> I think this binary vision of survival that Clark has adopted will come into play whenever she feels that Maddie is being threatened. And unlike the old Clark, the new Clark will not hesitate to do what is necessary to keep them both safe. It is a really interesting reversal watching Clark adopt this kind of grounder philosophy on survival. Yeah. Yeah. Um... 
As Clark makes her way through Eden, she stumbles upon what is quite possibly the most beautiful set the show has ever done, Shadow Valley. It is this like delightful little hippie commune that is perfect in every way, except, of course, for all the dead bodies, um, because hey, you can't have everything. <laughs> yeah, you know how people play that game of like which fantasy place they want to live, like Hogwarts, <laughs> Narnia, Neverland? The 100 has never been a place that I ever thought I would put on my list, but this place, Shadow Valley, was the first time I ever looked at this show and actually thought to myself, wow, I want to live there. <laughs> and it like shook me. I could not believe I was actually thinking those thoughts. Like all of this is to say that I want to be here. I want to be in this fairy elf village with the pretty colors and the wooden furniture and the bounciest food. I am all in. This place is for me. It was built for me. I just, just like, wait a minute. You are telling me that everyone in Polis and Asgata and Arcadia, they were all like murdering each other and trying to figure out how to survive the apocalypse. And the Shadow Valley clan was just like chilling the hell out in their adorable a little hippie village with their berries and their like multicolored scarves what what is this life exactly <laughs> they're like the quakers of the hundred it is unbelievable i i now know which clan i would have been in that is not true we both know you would have been in sky crew i would have been in Luweto <laughs> cleron crew or shadow valley crew in english um yeah okay fair point yeah, yeah that's accurate yeah. you would have been in sky crew. <laughs> so Apparently, the death wave just like jumped over the entire valley. It left the plants and the animals all basically untouched. However, the radiation still descended and killed all the people, which is evident by the fact that Clark walks into a church and it is filled with dozens of corpses. How are there edible plants or plants at all and fish in that river, but the humans are the only biological matter affected by the radiation? I need you to explain this. <laughs> I mean, the, the show made it clear last season that radiation started by killing off the smaller things like the fish and the bugs and the plants and the animals and then it ended by killing the humans so I really don't understand what the hell the writers were thinking here um but you know what I I, I can accept this it's not a real thing uh but I like the set too much to care so I'm glad that it's not dead <laughs> that's valid and I agree that I love this set so I'll ignore it it's really annoying to me though it is annoying um, I'm also curious why the Shadow Valley crew were like camped out in the church. Um, I, I wonder, you know, was it because they knew the death wave was coming and they just decided to wait for it? Because it seems like the radiation from the death wave wouldn't have killed them until hours or even days later. Um, so they, they, they would have known that the death wave had skipped them. So why are they still kind of hanging out in this church? Like maybe they started gathering when everyone became sick or... Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think that once people started becoming affected by the radiation, they probably turned to each other and this space, whether intended for religious meetings or not, is a great place to gather together as a community and honestly to pray. I mean, there's really nothing else you can do at that point. Yeah. Um, whatever the case, I am glad they made it easier for Clark to like collect and burn the bodies. That was very thoughtful of them. Indeed it was. And it was also a really nice callback to the first season when Clark opened the dropship and discovered all the burnt bodies she had just blown up. And then again in season two when she opened up the ventilation system in the mountain and all the mountain men, women, and children died in their seats. Oh yeah. She is the commander of death and it follows her everywhere. It was a very, very clear, like, like shockingly similar callback to the Mount Weather scene. Yeah. Um, it looked almost exactly the same. Yeah. Um, and, you know, even when there's no one left for her to kill, there is still death around Clark. Yeah. She's Juan Hayda. She is Juan Hayda. Um, as Clark burns the bodies, and she doesn't even know how many bodies she's burned since reaching the ground, she tells Bellamy that it would be much easier if she knew he was alive and that she would see him again. And yes, I am retconning here because she doesn't actually say Bellamy's name when she's saying this. However, 
It does seem to me that whenever she's talking uh, to other people in Space Crew, she calls them by their names, but when she talks to Bellamy, she just says you. So I choose to believe that she just really needs Bellamy to come back to her. Are you good with that? Oh, I am good with that. Excellent. Fine with that headcanon. <laughs> it's canon now. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Clark teases Space Crew about the algae they have to eat while she sits at her table feasting on berries and potatoes. And honestly, I feel she's like a tiny bit smug here, even though she'd never admit it. It's like the first moment she doesn't regret not making it back into the spaceship or into the bunker. She's like, I can live with this. This is fine. She's like popping these berries into your mouth being like, oh my God, how much does that algae suck, right? (laughs) I have fruit. (laughs) Um, She just looks so damn content here in her like little hippie commune with their little hippie feast and I am not sure we have ever seen her looking like this um not at the end of not including the end of last season when you know we saw her like after the time jump yeah so it it only goes to show like naturally it it can't last which brings us to it brings us to Clark uh being suddenly haunted by a demon child Mm -hmm. who has been plucked straight out of a horror film um Clark like looks up and she notices this little girl watching her and so she follows her out into the woods and tries to talk to her but while it looks like the child is running away from Clark, she's actually leading her into a bear trap. Oh, my God. <laughs> this girl really was destined to be Clark's kid. Clark literally walked into a trap. <laughs> How is that for the show being meta? Um, we all know this is Maddie, so we're going to start calling her that from now on. Um, but it's clear that she thinks Clark is a flame keeper who has come to take her away, which means that it's also clear that she's spent a lot of her life being afraid of, of being found out as Nightblood. So the moment that she realizes that Clark is a Nightblood too, she like backs off and runs away yeah even as she's setting traps and torturing Clark I can't help but feel so bad for this poor child who first had to endure years of fearing being discovered a la Octavia and then had to watch her people suffer and die around her and then spend the next few months alone like I can't believe she's even functioning at this point let alone outsmarting Clark and even while I feel like horrible for her as well I also have so much respect for her because damn that girl is a survivor um you know if Clark hadn't been there I I still kind of think Maddie would have made it like she would have grown up into this like little feral wildling instead of the well-adjusted preteen that we see later but still she would have made it she would have she would have been fine so Clark drags her wounded leg back to camp and performs some emergency surgery on herself without disinfecting the wound, which makes me cringe even much more so than her like sewing shut the gaping holes in her leg. <laughs> this scene, this whole scene played out like a horror film. Oh yeah. I, I love the way that this show plays with genre and they did such a good job taking us from a survival show to a horror show in the span of moments, like from the lighting to the close-up shots of Clark to the heartbeats they were playing instead of music. It was a like, quiet thumping of a heartbeat and then when Maddie showed up in the window like they actually used the score from Psycho the you know the, like the yink 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 it was perfect absolutely um and and Clark wakes up later to find her stuff stolen and like the little demon child is watching her through the window it even freaked me out oh. and I knew I knew that Maddie was going to be like my precious child that I would die for but that still does not stop her from being creepy as hell this whole scene was terrifying <laughs> Um, But in the morning, the sun is shining, and Clark heads to the river where she sees Maddie fishing with a spear. Clark asks if Maddie can teach her that, but when Maddie sees her, she runs away. Clark kind of washes her gross leg in the water and then spends the rest of the morning drawing. Did you notice that this scene was a small callback to season one when they used the red algae to disinfect Jasper's wound? I love those details. Um, I have to say that I have absolutely no memory of what you're talking about uh was Clark using red algae in this scene I I, I must have missed that no but it was in the background on the other side of the river oh oh 
So you're telling me that Clark, she's not only stumbled upon a utopia, but she has stumbled upon a utopia with its own healing springs? Precisely. They- also, <laughs> I forgot to mention this earlier, but when they first arrive and she jumps into the lake, there is a shot that is identical to the scene when Octavia takes her pants off and jumps into the lake and then comes up for breath. Like, just wanted to call that out because it is exactly the same. Yeah, I, I, I definitely did not miss that. Um, and I was actually a little bit terrified that the giant river monster was going to get her. Uh, but hopefully that thing died along with the rest of the people. <laughs> nope, it was just Maddie waiting for her. Uh, probably. <laughs> Um, Clark notices Maddie watching her and she leaves her drawing out on a rock for Maddie to find. And after Clark is gone, Maddie picks it up and the drawing she realizes is of her. And we finally see a little smile. A little smile. So this is the last scene we get between Clark and young Maddie. And this is one of the few things in this episode that kind of felt a little abrupt to me. Um, Personally, I would have liked to see at least one more scene after this of Maddie kind of coming to trust Clark. Um, So like, for example, maybe Clark and Maddie share dinner one night or or something like that that would help me see uh, how they've grown so close after the time jump. You know, just just like one tiny scene to connect it. I don't know if we really need it, but I, I think I would have responded better to these scenes if it were there. I completely agree, and I do think it was a mistake that they should have included it. The compression of this episode was hard to digest at times, and it was moments like this where it really showed where the seams of the story were fraying a little for me. Like, they clearly didn't have time to add it, but it feels like a missing link between where Maddie and Clark started and where they ended up, and we needed a short middle scene to bridge the two, and I'm, I'm very annoyed that they didn't include it. I wouldn't say I'm annoyed, but I would have preferred a different way. We'll just say that. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> um, it's six years later, and not only has Clark learned to fish, but she is now like fishing in style by throwing that damn spear and catching a fish. This girl is endlessly impressive, and I love her. Um, but back at camp, Maddie drives in on the rover and tells Clark that there are enough berries this year to dye their hair. Clark isn't sure, but Maddie says she'll cook and clean for a week. And Clark, always the negotiator, counters with two weeks, and they head off to find the berries. And from that instant that Maddie jumps out of the rover, I love her with all my heart. It's love at first sight. Maddie is ours. She is our child. I, I don't know if it was quite love at first sight because little Maddie was terrifying, but but this Maddie is a lovable little darling and I, I adore her. Well, since last episode, the season finale, we have loved her. That That's was true. first sight. That's true. But that was alternate universe Maddie. This Maddie is a little bit different. Fair point. But I think it's more the concept of Maddie that we love. Or I love. I'm, I'm just glad that Clark has spent the last six years in this beautiful place with this, like, adorable little kid. Um, I, I, I kind of wonder, you know, in the deepest parts of me, if Clark would have been happier if no one ever comes back or gets out of the bunker and she could just, like, live this simple life forever. Um, of course, that, that won't happen. But And I, I guess we'll see how things shake out this season, too. You know, but I, I can't help but wonder, is this the happiest she'll ever be? <laughs> Yeah, and, you know, not to, like, dwell on this too deeply, but I think, like, all lost or shipwrecked stories, the idea of there not being another generation is always a theme. I think if no one ever came back, Clark would have been saddened and burdened that Maddie would never find love or have a family of her own and then eventually die alone after Clark passed away. It's, like, not a pretty picture or a happy line to draw from this scenario. Yeah. Um, I don't think it would have been all roses and sunshine. No, forever. it wouldn't have been perfect, but... I'm saying, would this be the happiest that she ever will be in her life? It's very possible. 
Um, Clark dyes Maddie's hair beside the fire that night, and Maddie asks Clark how she wouldn't believe that Octavia would win the conclave, because as she puts it, Sky Ripa's a beast. <laughs> um, Clark looks over at her drawings of Octavia, and it's clear that she is not so sure. Um, Maddie assures Clark that Octavia will find a way to get them out of the bunker, and Clark tries to look like she believes her. I love that we get confirmation of Clark telling bedtime stories of her friend's quote-unquote adventures to Maddie. We saw this in the trailer, but it's nice to see it in the first episode. Oh, absolutely. And, and I'm so glad that this like little bit of headcanon is actually canon. Um, and I wonder whether Clark has kind of left out a lot of the nuance or whether Maddie's just not old enough to understand the nuance because she clearly does not have a strong understanding of who Octavia is. <laughs> Same. But I think this season will definitely play with the theme of who a person is versus what their reputation is. And this is a variation on that, especially where Octavia is concerned. Yeah, I, I love that idea. Um, and I think we talked about it in our season five trailer recap about how Maddie is going to um, reconcile who all these people are as real people and not just the hero archetypes that she knows them as. Um, but in the same way, Clark and Bellamy and Octavia and really everyone will have to come to terms with the fact that the people that they used to know don't really exist anymore. And they're going to have to kind of figure out if they still feel the same way about each other as they used to feel um, when they meet again. Yeah, it's so true. And it also applies to the Allegis crew as well, whose reputations precede them. But as we know, they'll get a much more dynamic, non-black and white picture of who they are as individuals and not just as these prisoners. Yeah, ready for that. But uh, we'll get to that in a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so Maddie tells Clark that she's sorry her friends left without her. But Clark isn't because she wouldn't have met Maddie. And as they look up at the stars, Clark wonders aloud whether space crew will come back. As Clark was looking up, we zoom up to the arc and see Bellamy looking down at Eden, wondering about how they're going to get back. Feels like the Romeo and Juliet balcony scene to me, and obviously Bellamy is Juliet. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, let's just say the parallel here isn't subtle. Uh, we'll leave it at that. Also, any situation in which Clark and Bellamy are together, Bellamy is definitely Juliet. <laughs> yes, the metaphor is highly applicable to all of their interactions. <laughs> He is the damsel Clark is. <laughs> Clark is not. Uh, uh, Raven and Echo are sparring, and then Monty tells them soup's on. Raven ends up getting the upper hand and winning, and Echo says that she let her win because she wanted to eat. I love that they're friends now. It's super adorable. I mean, as I've said before, Echo teaching the rest of them to fight is um, it's basically the fulfillment of my wildest dreams, and I loved every single thing about this. Agreed. I love that they're joking around and teasing each other. It feels like they genuinely like each other and not that they're just stuck together in space. Yeah. It's everything I ever wanted. They're family. Yeah. Uh, Monty's new version of algae is called Green's Green Goop, and it's definitely better than the other batches, if by better you mean that it doesn't make you want to violently hurl. <laughs> uh, Bellamy comes over from watching Eden and tells Amori to take a break and eat with them. It's not surprising, but it is worth noting that Bellamy is still the de facto leader here. It's subtle, but he's definitely in charge. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have expected anything different. Um, I don't think that any of the people, except for Bellamy on the station, are like the quote-unquote leader type. Um, Bellamy <clears throat> is really the only one for the job. And I, I think, you know, this is also the first interaction we get between Bellamy and Amori, to my knowledge, or at least the first kind of real one. Substantial one. Yeah. And I loved how it was immediately clear that Amori has become an accepted member of this family. Mm-hmm. And it was nice to see Bellamy speak to her with care and warmth. Yeah. And on a side note, um, who was extremely surprised that Harper and Monty were still together? Because I was. And, and although, um, you know, they've, they've had very little stress in space and I guess, you know, there wasn't a lot that would break apart a relationship. So I can see why they're still together. 
but I had definitely expected them to be broken up. Yeah, I was surprised at first too, um, but watching them interact throughout this episode, it, it did make sense to me. Yeah, we can talk about this more later, but um, this episode has finally gotten me on the Harper Monty train. I loved every single interaction between them, and I, I want more. Yeah, and we'll talk about this more later. Yeah. Uh, Raven doesn't know why they're even wasting their time with the radio, and they know that the atmospheric radiation blocks the signals. Bellamy says they waste their time so they can tell the bunker crew that there is still a place that's livable, but as Raven reminds him, the ground radiation has been survivable for a year, and they can live anywhere. This scene does a really fantastic job at giving both a quick recap of the easy family dynamic here while also showing the major spots of tension in the group. Um, the biggest point being that Raven is apparently unable to get them back home. Agreed. And it also does a perfect job setting up an immediate problem source that we know will have to be solved by the end of this episode, which creates a really nice bit of dramatic tension that was missing with Clark and Maddie in their oasis. Yeah. Uh, Raven promises to try to boost the antenna signal tomorrow, and Amori calls shotgun on the spacewalk. Raven says she needs an assistant who actually will listen to her, at which Amori promises that she will do everything Raven says and have absolutely no fun whatsoever. Raven and Amori's relationship is perfect in every way, and I love it. <laughs> they seem to really have grown into a beautiful partnership, and I love that Amori has shifted into the role as Raven's mechanical assistant, and it seems to be thriving in it. You know, as you mentioned in the last podcast, it makes perfect sense that her with her character background that she'd fit in this role, but it also serves such an important function of giving Amori a sense of purpose and value in their group dynamic, and I also wanted to say that, does she remind you of anyone? Because Raven literally was a spacewalk who never came back oh, and yeah. never listened to anybody. <laughs> like, it's amazing. I know. I mean, that's why they're so perfect together. They're great. Um, I mean, this this really is a friendship I feel like I've been waiting for my whole life. And if you notice in this scene, Imori isn't wearing her glove anymore, um, which is so great. Like, she's finally found a place with people who accept her for who she is and people who make her stronger and better. And this is what I've wanted for Imori since we first met her. Um, I, I just couldn't be any happier with where she is right now. It's also more than just a professional partnership. They really seem to care about each other. Later on in this scene, Bellamy makes a faux pas and snaps at Raven um, about her inability to get them to the ground. And Amori immediately jumps in to defend Raven without a moment's hesitation. It is fantastic. Um, and speaking, too, of Bellamy's, like, quote-unquote time violation, can we all just, like, take a second and let it soak in that um, dealing with Murphy is considered a chore alongside dishes and latrines? <laughs> which Amori would have preferred rather than deal with Murphy at this point uh, which I should say it comes as no surprise uh, to anyone who's heard anything about this season that Imori and Murphy are not in a great place when we pick up with this show um, and this scene does a really great job of cementing that fact with using very little words you know Murphy isn't even with the group anymore he's like off on his own and yet still his presence or lack of presence is very much felt yeah no he's been exiled too and I quote him his part of the ship for reasons I'm sure we'll soon discover but you know I think he chose exile on his own oh yeah I, I'm, I'm pretty positive he did choose his own exile as um, evidenced by the next scene mm -hmm. which is Bellamy takes Murphy's algae soup to him but Murphy kind of jumps Bellamy before he can reach him saying that Bellamy is now on his side of the ship Bell says that he'll fight Murphy but if Bellamy wins Murphy has to come back but Murphy refuses saying that Bellamy's side of the ship has way too many rules and besides there's no one to disappoint on Murphy's side and as they fight though they see a ship heading uh hovering over eden ah oh, murphy what a little punk ass bitch <laughs> i love him so deeply <laughs> i know it really is so funny how much we love him and you know what else uh what else i love 
I love Bellamy holding Murphy up against a wall and like demanding that he love himself. <laughs> if only he would do that to me. <laughs> we see right off the bat that Murphy has not fared nearly as well in the microcosmic society up here. It's it's really not a good fit for him, and he much prefers solitude. I like to think that Bellamy takes the brunt of the Murphy chores just so they can have these nice little therapy sessions trying to solve the riddle that is Murphy's brain. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Be- like Bellamy being the dad of the ship feels so right for his character like he has basically just adopted everyone and and murphy's clearly the problem child um but bellamy has never met a kid he doesn't like so uh he he's he's taken on this responsibility um but in all seriousness what do you make of bellamy telling murphy that murphy likes being a hero and that he's having a hard time because there are no heroes in space because i wouldn't have ever really associated murphy with having a hero complex Good question. I had the same reaction and I have two thoughts about this. The first is that Bellamy is not using the term hero here in the traditional sense that usually is to imply that Murphy is interested in sacrificing himself to save others or for the greater good. I think Bellamy is actually referencing Murphy's need to feel useful and the only way Murphy knows how to do that is to survive and to help others survive with him as is the case with Omori. I also think that Bellamy might be projecting a little bit here because he definitely has a hero (laughs) complex and I think he's going a little stir crazy with no way to save his friends after they realize they're stranded up here you know we even see him lash out at Raven which is a very Murphy like behavior and I think Bellamy volunteered to go and see Murphy as a punishment for his words to Raven and the punishment fits the crime yeah I would agree. And and one point that's interesting to me, too, is that we find out later that um that Murphy and Amori broke up only like six months ago, which makes me think that Murphy wasn't actually doing so bad until they realized that they had no way to get back to Earth. And then, you know, at the prospect of being stuck in space, Murphy's like totally lost it um, because Bellamy specifically mentions the word worthless here. And it's obvious that Murphy feels absolutely useless in space, um, given that everyone else has this role to play and he's just kind of, you know, stuck doing nothing. Um, So maybe Murphy was actually more able to keep control over his issues when he thought that their time and space had an end point. Uh, But when it became clear that it didn't, Murphy just wasn't able to handle his own like self-confidence issues anymore. What do you think? Yeah, I think you're probably right. I think he just gave up trying. Yeah. Uh, All of space crew watches the ship over Eden. Murphy wants to light up the ring so the other ships know they're there. But Bellamy wants to find out who they are before they ask for help. And Amori and Raven aren't able to reach them. Uh, the comms could be disabled, the ship could be unmanned, or as Murphy puts it, the ship could be manned by aliens who prefer anal probes to radios. <laughs> Very true, Murphy. Very true. <laughs> um, so what do you think this scene says about how Bellamy has changed? You know, Clark told him he needs to think with both his head and his heart, and Bellamy's clearly taken that advice. Um, the old Bellamy may have rushed to contact the Allegis about a fear that they'd, you know, lose their chance otherwise, but this new Bellamy is is much more measured and patient and, and more willing to take his time and to go through their options before making a decision. Totally. It's obvious he's really listened to Clark's advice and has had six years of practicing it. It's also really interesting that Murphy has assumed Bellamy's old role to leap first. Murphy is is so desperate to get off this spaceship and escape this situation that he wants to do the way riskier plan of lighting up the ship rather than do Bellamy's more practical and safer plan when usually Murphy is the one who has the survival instincts. Um, You know, he's just itching to get off this ship. He's acting careless and he's desperate and it's cracking and it shows. 
Yeah, you know, I, I, I do get that it's probably better to get more information here before acting, um, but I also understand Murphy here, you know, being worried that they could lose the one chance that they have if they don't act now. And he, he really wants to go back to Earth. And I can't say that I wouldn't feel the same in that position. I would not, I mean, like, as much as I love space, I would not want to live on that ring my whole life. No, I don't want to live on the, the ring either, and that's fair, but I agree with Bellamy. I'm, I'm not interested in being attacked by space aliens, like... Maybe with they're their, nice with aliens. their probes. No. Like, I mean, not all aliens have anal probes. That is a stereotype. We do not stereotype on this podcast. Murphy <laughs> just said that. Murphy is not a great person all the time. I was riffing off of Murphy. <laughs> Take it up with him. Um, Murphy decides to turn on the lights, but Amori kind of cuts him off, saying that they make decisions as a team here, even if they can't stand the sight of each other. And there are still hella sparks between those two and I love it I am shipping it so hard I uh, I can't wait to watch them come back together this season because I, I feel really confident that they will these two actors have such a great dynamic and so much chemistry when we read an interview with Louisa on Hypable about Amori's journey this season it's just it's so clear that she deeply understands and connects with this character and that she and Richard Harmon both work really hard to do them justice this is also one of my most favorite kind of love tropes like the hate to love even if they started out in love I'm just shipping this so hard Hard and I love it (laughs) um and it's a nice little callback to here in this scene and Maury tells Murphy that it could be an AI piloting the ship but Murphy who you know hated Allie from the start um he would prefer the aliens instead and I am not sure I agree um but still like I get it Murphy I get it yeah nobody liked Allie no, no one liked Ali. Jaha. Jaha, Jaha liked, did like Ali. <laughs> Jaha liked Ali. Makes a lot of sense. <laughs> um, as Space Crew notices a transport ship leaving the main ship and heading for Eden, we flash to where we left Clark at the end of last season as she and Maddie watch the Allegia ship land. Uh, Maddie and Clark head back to the village in the rover, and Clark promises that she will not let anything happen to Maddie. And already here, we are seeing Clark like we have never seen her before. You know, all of her focus and energy is centered on this, like, one little human who has clearly become her everything. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I did want to call out that this is one of the most, or one of the sequences that was particularly jarring for me. I know that it was intentional. I know this was, like, an editing choice, but I'm just not sure that it worked for me, and I think I would have preferred a smoother transition. I just thought the flashes back and forth were really rocky and distracting, but again, I know this is just me. It was not jarring for me in quite the same way, because to me, this feels like um, like everything in the episode has been backstory leading to this moment exactly, and now the real season's about to begin. Uh, but I, I can see what you mean with the editing they've done here. It's it's It's, it's hard to tell a story the same story from from two different places when they're witnessing the same thing um you know we see space crew seeing the dropship head down to earth and then flashing to clark and she's seeing dropship land um but I, i don't think there's any real way to get around that kind of transition i don't know i've seen this show do some amazing editing techniques so i think this transition was intentionally rocky you know more than usual and on purpose um it just wasn't my cup of tea I, I think part of the problem is they had to um, include the scene from the end of last season as kind of the connector, and that 
doesn't quite feel like it matches everything that we're seeing here in this scene. It felt like a little bit out of place. Yeah, I think that's a good point. It was like a puzzle piece that didn't quite fit. Yeah. I think that's a great way of putting it. Um, Clark tells Maddie that until they figure this out, Maddie is to hide in her secret spot, the place she used to hide from the Flamekeepers. Uh, the Flamekeepers never found Maddie, so as Clark reasons, these new people won't either. And as Clark gives Maddie a gun, she cautions her that if she shoots, they'll hear her. And Maddie says she'll make sure it's her only choice. Only choice. An oxymoron. An oxymoron. <laughs> Maddie is just as much the product of Bellamy as she is of Clark. He just <laughs> hasn't met her yet. Oh my God, he's going to love her, though. He's going to adopt her instantaneously. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, on, on a serious note, though, I, I wonder how many times Maddie has heard Clark use that phrasing because it's very clear in the scene that it's Clark's phrasing and that Maddie's kind of parroting it back to her. So has Clark um, included this kind of only choice narrative in her storyline? I was wondering the same thing. It's clear that this is a phrase they use back and forth with each other a lot, but I don't know if Clark intentionally discussed it with Maddie um, when referring to Bellamy or if this is just something that slipped into her vernacular, vernacular subconsciously. Um, I, I mean, I, I definitely didn't mean like the cute little oxymoron moment that she had with Bellamy. Uh, I don't think that she's told her that, <laughs> but, um, you, you don't, <laughs> I, I, I probably, I don't think so. I mean, you never know, you but never uh, know. <laughs> um, but I, I really meant Clark's kind of overall narrative about the things she's done being her like only choice. And I, I wonder how much of that she's relayed to Maddie and in what ways. I wasn't actually referring to the oxymoron moment either, but rather Bellamy's choices where he felt like he had no other option and how that sort of shaped his narrative and what she would have told about that. Um, I guess the question is how much has Clark shared with Maddie where either of them is concerned? That's a good question. Um, but I will say that I don't think Bellamy has had the same kind of only choice narrative that Clark has had um, because Bellamy is the one who would kind of call her out on it. And Clark was always the one who would excuse the things that she's done uh, as being like the only option that she could take. And and usually I, I did agree with her choices, but they were never her quote unquote only choice. Yeah, that's a good point. Bellamy is always the one who feels the guilt and the burden of his actions deeply, sometimes too deeply. Very, very deeply. Um, Maddie crawls into her hole in the floor and inside she finds a drawing Clark made of her all those years ago. So um, and the Octavia parallel is complete. I didn't realize quite how literal it would be in this scene. We have both the um, hole under the floor and then also the drawing of her, which, you know, in the same way Octavia took strength from Lincoln's drawings of her. So, yeah, the, the parallel is not subtle. They are really driving this comparison home. And it makes me really excited to see excited and like very very anxious to see what happens between Octavia and, and Maddie I am season. very nervous um Clark watches through her rifle scope as the prisoner transport door opens and Charmaine Dioza comes out looking like a badass and immediately like terrifying her way into all of our hearts yeah I especially appreciated that as she soaks in the sun and the sky for the first time and who knows how long Clark and the viewers get a nice look at her menacing scar on her throat that clearly says, do not F with me. It also clearly says, like, you think this looks bad? You see what the other guy looks like, um, especially given that I am here right now and he's not. Yes, she's a survivor, a really good one, and a true adversary for Clark. She's physically capable, she's in charge, and she's very intelligent. You know, she seems to be Clark's equal. Also, have you noticed that she seems to be one of the only women on the ship, or or possibly the only one? I um, I didn't see any 
others, although I might if I went back and like actually watched it a little bit more closely. Um, but still, it's making me wonder if perhaps this was not a co-ed prison after all. Like, um, you know, what what if Dioza was actually a prison guard who got her throat cut when the prisoners rebelled and then somehow ended up joining their side? I love that theory. I hope you're right. Or it just occurred to me, what if McCreary was the one who cut her throat and that's why she respects him so much? Oh my god, that's even better. <laughs> Um, I, I, I just, I can't wait to see more of her this season because I have really missed having a villain that I could, um, sympathize with, or at least understand in some way. And we, we really haven't had that in the last two seasons. Agreed. As we mentioned on the last podcast, I think the last villain that fits this bill was Dante in season two. Yeah. So it'll be a nice, um, a nice, uh, familiar kind of thing to have another foil like that again. Agreed. Agreed. Um, two other prisoners, the Zeke and McCreary, we've heard so much about in interviews, come up alongside Dioza. Dioza tells Zeke that he was right about spending extra time in orbit to find this place, and she tells him to find out what happened to their planet while they were asleep. Zeke takes the non-violent offenders with him, all two of them. <laughs> <laughs> this scene does such a fantastic job giving us a succinct insight into Zeke and McCreary's personalities. You know, in one sentence, Dioza has told us all that we need to know about Zeke. He's literate, he's super smart, has a background in science and he prefers nonviolent companions so all arrows pointing to him being the hero of this bunch plus Zeke is already sassy with his like so much for the meek inheriting the earth bit um so basically basically he sounds perfect for our raven which we all know is coming exactly like the <laughs> ship has sailed before both characters are even on board <laughs> on the other side <laughs> on the other side of this we have McCreary who is the total opposite of Zeke a psychopath mm-hmm. he is still Dioz's favorite mass murderer though so that's lovely and a little interesting thing to note that I'm sure will come back later it also seems like McCreary has like a little bit of an inferiority complex when it comes to Zeke, which is why Dioza has to reassure him. And I think that that is going to be a factor in later episodes. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking it too. I also like how this scene gives us some insight into the dynamic between the three of them with Dioza in charge and Zeke and McCreary as her right and left hands, you know, the brains and then the muscle. Yeah. Um, And also meeting Zeke here. I, I still remain unconvinced that Zeke was actually a prisoner who committed a crime so bad that they had to, like, ship him off world to a prison. Um, I, I don't know who he is, you know, a prison guard, a scientist, or whatever. Um, but until he is confirmed as a prisoner, I am going to proceed as if he isn't. Same. I just don't see any evidence of him being capable of committing a heinous crime. No, and I mean... I mean, not that you necessarily had to commit, like, a heinous crime to be shipped off to an asteroid, but I I have a hard time seeing this Zeke committing any crime. I know we don't know him very well yet. Um, the one thought I have here is that he maybe, like, committed a crime, like, hacking the government and was, like, charged with treason or whatever. Um, but still, I, I, I'm not sure. Um, I'm, I'm just really excited to learn more of his backstory and, and of all of their backstories, really. Same. I'm very, very excited. This is very fresh and a new yeah. territory for us. It's a whole new world. Whole new world. Uh, Dioza tells McCreary to sweep the village, and Clark sees men with guns heading Maddie's way. She heads back to the cave where they've stashed the jeep. She loads her gun, grabs her knife, and heads off to the village. But as she leaves, she hears a gunshot. Um, I quickly wanted to note at this point um, the change in pace here. They start playing the heartbeat sound again, which just makes this whole scene suddenly shift into like an action sequence, and everything suddenly ramps up, which is really, really cool, and I, I love I love when they do things like that. Yeah, and I also wanted to note that Clark is drawing all of the weapons here in her notebook and taking stock of the weapons that these other people have. Um, so in particular, she's noticed this like blast cannon, which we saw McCreary using against her in the season five trailer. Um, so if that isn't foreshadowing, I don't know what it is, uh, but I it, 
that's going to come into play very soon, I think. <laughs> yes, uh, McCreary's gun, if you will. <laughs> but um, sh- <laughs> uh, love my jokes. So good. Um, back at the village, it looks like the prisoners have found Maddie. And apparently when they did, Maddie shot one in the leg because, you know, my little girl. Um, the injured one wants to shoot her, but the other protests about shooting a kid. But just as the first one draws his gun, Clark appears and shoots him. They fight and Maddie ends up killing the first one in the struggle. Clark takes the gun from her. And when Maddie says that the other man might be a good guy, Clark says that there are no good guys and she shoots him too. And the circle of life is complete. (laughs) Just as the Grounders seem to violently attack for no good reason when Sky Crew came down in Season 1, Clark treats these men, Grounders 2.0, without mercy, completing the cycle. Yes. And and for as vicious as Demon Really? Yeah. The demon was coming out there. Um... For as vicious as Demon Baby Maddie was, it is also clear that um, our Maddie has kept a lot of her innocence. Um, She's obviously never killed before, and killing this man in the scene really affects her. Even if, you know, even if he'd be, even if he was going to shoot her a minute ago, it still really shook her that she killed him. Um, And I worry that the season is going to be a little hard on Maddie, both mentally and emotionally. Um, I'm curious to see who she's going to be when she comes out of it in the end. And I do choose to believe that she will come out of it this season because I refuse to consider the possibility that she might die. That is not on the table. No, I feel very confident that she won't die, but I doubt she'll make it out of this season unscathed, either physically and or emotionally. That just doesn't seem likely. Uh, Yeah. You got got a road ahead of you, Maddie. Yeah, you're on the hundred. (laughs) We're there for your girl. (laughs) Take, take stock of what show you're on. Yep. Uh, the other prisoners hear the gunshots, and when Zeke asks Dioza what it means, she says it means they're not alone. Bum, bum, bum. Uh, excellent callback to first episode of season one when Jasper Speared and the delinquents realize that uh, the earth is like inhabited with grounders. Um, now, as we've said, Clark is the new grounder, and the prisoners are the new delinquents, um, all grown up and, and probably kind of evil, but <laughs> not pure evil. It wouldn't be the 100 without some beautiful shades of gray characterization. I mean, honestly, a lot of them probably are going to be pure evil, mass-murdering psychopaths. Um, But there will certainly be some that will have more to them than that, like my boy Zeke. Mm -hmm. Um, And and even Diosa, who, well, really scary, is already like the most intriguing bad guy we've had on the show in a long time. And actually, I would go as far as to say the most intriguing bad guy we've ever had on the show. Even after one episode, I'm like, who is this woman? Tell me more. And I'm also, and we've talked about this. I can't remember if we talked about this on the last podcast or not. But I am not convinced that she is going to remain a bad guy. Like, I have I have secret hopes that she will be turned and become a good guy. Yeah, well, I think that Jason at one point, or someone said that in many ways, Octavia is the real villain of this season. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess we'll see what that ends up meaning. Um, yeah. But... I my like you know wildest dreams would be for Dioza to kind of come onto our side. Yeah, and I want her to join the team. Yeah, <laughs> it's been one episode. She's had one line. <laughs> I, but she's I just like I know her, like presence is so amazing. It is. She's it's really great. Yeah. Um, the space crew plan is to fly over to the other ship since they aren't able to calm them. Uh, Harper is, is packing their things, but Monty isn't convinced that they should go. They only have enough fuel to reach the other ship, so if they leave, they won't be able to come back. And they don't know if there's anything on the other ship that can help them. Um, Harper is willing to take the risk, but Monty isn't so sure. And even though if I were in their position, 
I'd want to take the risk to get back to the ground. I can totally see why Monty is not willing to take that same risk. You know, he's he's lost so much, um, and on the ground, it, it's only brought him pain. And he's he's finally happy here in space. And let's face it, when he gets back to Earth, we know things are gonna suck. Uh, that's just the way the shows goes. Um, on the other hand, it's also hard to imagine staying in space the rest of your life only eating algae. But I don't think that Monty's fears are unfounded here in any sense. Yeah, I don't think he's wrong, but the alternative is a slow death in space. That's basically their future, you know, barely surviving in this floating hunk of metal until they all die of old age or illness. So I, I can understand why Harper is so eager to escape. I mean, I actually could see Monty being happy with this life for quite a while. Um, he's he's back to the basics. He's farming as a true farm boy station boy guy. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he has his Harper. He has his algae. I think Monty is set, but in the long run, I think he would come to regret it because no one could live in that world forever. No, it's not a real life. No. So Monty feels guilty about his mother's and Jasper's deaths. And though Jasper says, or though Harper says it wasn't his fault, he knows he could have done more. He doesn't want to be that person again. And Harper tells Monty that he's strong and that's why she loves him. But Monty doesn't think anyone should have to be that strong. I'm sure you all remember that I haven't been particularly impressed with Harper's character on the show thus far, but this was the first scene where I really felt connected to her, and their dynamic really worked for me. Um, I loved this scene. It's really promising for the rest of the season, and I'm finally hopeful that we'll get more from Harper and that the writers will start to treat her the way that they treat everyone else with depth and characterization that has been sorely lacking. So I was I was very happy with this. Yeah, I, I absolutely loved Harper in this scene. Um, when we watched it, I think we actually both turned to each other and we're like this is the first time I've ever been interested in her yeah it was it was a double reaction she she has this peace now that she didn't have before and that's made this inner strength that she's always had that much more apparent and I, I really think that um you know their relationship has progressed in a great way and at this point I can see them being it for each other I don't think that uh the ground is going to test their relationship as it will um others that we'll get to in a second (laughs) (laughs) i think this six-year time jump was a great way for the writers to reset harper with a blank slate i think that they kind of backed her into a corner in season four that they didn't know how to get out of and the time jump really helped move past some of the emotional trauma and push her to a place where you know she has some agency which i'm really looking forward to seeing more of actually yes give her more agency in season five that's what i and give her her more to do yeah Aside from, like, less Less emoting, more action. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, like, I like the emoting, but I just want her to be emoting about herself and not as much about, like, relationships. I want her to be emoting about, like, the choices that she makes. Yeah. Instead of the things that are happening to her. Well, she did kind of do that about um, the kid who killed Toby or Logan or whatever. (laughs) The kid she, like, did. Toby. (laughs) Why do you still call him Toby? No, I feel like, like I called him something else last year. I don't know what it was. Toby. It wasn't Toby. It was like Tom or oh my Tony. God. Doesn't or... matter. <laughs> it was Toby. Whoever she like let die or thinks she let died, we did see that struggle in her, but I just didn't quite feel it because I don't think she'd been given enough um, additional context as a character to like make me feel the weight of her choice yeah I I really just want them to shade her in a little bit more and give her some more depth but I think they are going to do and especially from all of the marketing that we have seen they've been really focusing on Harper which is also contributes to them I thinking that that's going to happen for her this season so fingers crossed 
Um, Mori had been planning to grab the rest of her stuff from Murphy's room after he left, but too late. Murphy is already waiting outside her room with her bag. Um, Raven tells him that he blew a good thing, and when Murphy thanks her for her empathy, she says that she's cranky that she had to share him with for the last six months because Mori made Murphy feel inadequate. Why do I feel like this is Gossip Girl in space? There's <laughs> just so much drama, and I love it. I am living for it. Like, I need memory angst. Like, I need oxygen. <laughs> I, if it, the entire show was just memory angst, I would be fine with oh, that. Yeah, I would be so in. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, can we talk about the perfection that is the Murphy-Raven bromance? Uh, because I really did think before this season started that Murphy and Raven would have, um, they would have been having platonic sex as a way to, like, past time and deal with their issues but this episode has really made it clear that they are are really more like brother and sister and I support that 100% same the banter and the bickering it's just it's just perfect and they play off of each other so well and I will never get over the um the cockroach playing a violin line. <laughs> never not in all my life it's so good and then Murphy's uh-huh, reaction <laughs> they're so cute and I'm dying uh, this is I mean this is just it's what I want perfect it's perfect <laughs> Bellamy is doing a final sweep and he walks in on Echo packing. Echo asks Bellamy what they're going to be when they get back to the ground and Bellamy promises her that nothing is going to change and then they kiss. The kiss of death, if you will, after that quote-unquote nothing is going to change line um, because there is really nothing he could have said that would bode worse than that. And also... Brit has things to say, but I have said she's not allowed to speak until I finish recapping this because I just, like, I need to, like, get it all out before she talks. Grumble, grumble, <laughs> grumble, grumble, grumble. Um, so Bellamy says that they've kept each other alive, they're all family, and nothing can change that. Echo reminds him that she is still banished and almost once killed Octavia, and Bellamy, who has obviously never met his sister in his entire life, promises Echo that Octavia will understand. It took Bellamy three years to forgive Echo, but as he says, he's more stubborn than Octavia. Not okay. true. Um, and that whatever they run into on the ground, Octavia will be the least of their worries. Echo does not seem as convinced as him because she is an intelligent human being. Smarter. Um, and sh as she leaves, she grabs the sword from her bed. She is not leaving that behind. Good call. Um, so all right, Britt. I'm ready. Shoot. <laughs> okay. So I have a lot of feelings about this, um, but I'm not going to talk about them because they are for me and they are my feelings and I don't want to burden anyone with my emotions. <laughs> um, instead, I will calmly state that my worst nightmare was realized with this kiss and I am not pleased um, and I am not being melodramatic. I want to <laughs> state for the record that I love Echo with all of my heart and I am so ready for Echo to have an actual character arc with some growth and progression. I think it's clear that I am in love with Bellamy, <laughs> um, but I do not love them together. I hate it. I have been dreading this possibility since Echo spit in Bellamy's face in season two. I, I thought that we were going to go in this direction. They delayed it for two seasons and then boom. <laughs> it's not that I'm worried that Bellark is an endgame, but rather that Bellark is endgame. And I really didn't want Bellamy to be in love with someone just to discover that Clark is alive, shock, and then leave <laughs> that person who in this case is Echo. You know, Echo, Echo really deserves happiness. She deserves love. I am not interested in watching her suffer through the Bellark reunion and the rekindling of their totally platonic, in quotes, romance, which we all know is coming. This was disappointing on a character level for me. And that's that. And I can't even think about this analytically because I get very angry. angry. I clench my fists. So rant over. And I'm going to pass it over to Sarah to say all of the intelligent things about this. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. Well, I, I mean, I, I have some very mixed feelings about this. Um, first off, I was supremely unsurprised by this development. I think every single person has seen this coming like two seasons away. Um, second, I've always thought that Bellamy and Echo have really great sexual chemistry. And I'm going to be totally honest. If Clark and Bellamy weren't a thing in my mind, I would most likely be shipping Bellamy hardcore with Echo. Like, it would just be a thing. Right. But the fact that they have so much chemistry and they are the second choice is very irritating to me because it is like a viable option and I'm going to be done now. I mean, we had this discussion. We can just like briefly recount it. You know, Clark had Lexa and Lexa was, I think, just as viable an option as, as Bellamy was for Clark. I don't think that Clark and Echo are on the same level for Bellamy. I think Clark and, and Bellamy... I think Clark is, is, is like the clear <laughs> clear choice here over Echo. Not that I don't like Echo. Actually, I'm going to you know, talk about that in a second. Um, but, but I just... I like I don't see like Alexa and Echo on the same level here in terms of like character love. So... But we'll not get into that because, you know, Britt could just, like, rant for it. She yeah. was real mad during this episode. I haven't seen her this mad since um, Bellamy, Bellamy murdered, murdered a bunch of people, people in season three, which is very weird. That <laughs> 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 it's, like, equal those level. Are, yeah, those are the same. <laughs> um, but where was I? So so I would be shipping Bellamy and Echo if, if Clark and Bellamy weren't a thing. And, and I do also completely understand why they're together. I, th- I think it makes a lot of sense. You know, w- when you're stuck with people for that long, you kind of come to know them on this incredibly deep level. And I, I genuinely think that Bellamy has forgiven Echo for the things that she's done um, because I-, I think she really was sorry for them eventually. Um, I- and I also think she had good reasons to do it. Like her reasons were to save her people the same as Bellamy has done so many times um, and Clark has done so many times and, and really a lot of them have, have done so many times. So she's really no different. Um, The one real issue I have with this is that I worry that Echo will be reduced to like a love interest here. Whereas I was really excited for her character arc this season. And I really, I really want to see a lot more of her. Like I I feel like we've barely brushed the surface with her and I want to see, see more of her depth as a person and, and her relationships with the others, not just her like romantic relationships and tension with Bellamy. Um, but, but who knows, maybe it won't be as big of a focus as it seems. Um, I, I am positive that Bellamy won't leave Echo for Clark. I don't think there will be a love triangle in any way, shape or form. I think that Bellamy and Echo's relationship is going to kind of self-destruct because they are both kind of too similar and too different in all the wrong ways. And when they're tested, I don't think they're going to find themselves agreeing on the same courses of action. Um, plus let's be real. Octavia is clearly going to be a huge obstacle between them. And I'm actually really curious to see how that ends up playing out. Yeah. (laughs) But more on that in later episodes. We'll move on. Um, Speaking of Octavia, we are suddenly back in the bunker. And this is not the bunker that we've known. A fence has been kind of erected around the central room to form this fighting ring. There are bloodstains everywhere. And everyone is watching as a group of people below 
fight to the death, it seems. Um, it appears that one fighter comes out victorious, and as we pan up to the throne above, Octavia sits there, and she is just, like, staring at this fight very impassively. Um, the general rule is you don't talk about Fight Club, but you better believe that we're going to be talking about it next episode. Get ready to rumble. <laughs> ready to rumble. Octavia sitting there surveying her precious Fight Club is honestly terrifying, and I'm really scared of her now. Um, as unrealistic as it may seem, I wish that the writers would have continued her emotional arc that they began with her and Ilian last season. It makes me really sad that she's um, undone all of the progress that she had made, and I feel like it kind of makes Ilian's death like it was in vain, since she ultimately did not carry on like his his teachings of like peace and and his like trying to instill some sort of inner contentment for her with that said I think that this sequence of events makes sense you know I understand how we got here and I I completely agree that given the circumstances this is what Octavia would become I don't think that there was any kind of misstep taken here I just kind of mourn the person that she could have been and the potential that went with it I mean, really, like, I just mourn Ilian. <laughs> well, that Ilian, is a different I thing <laughs> altogether. I deeply, deeply mourn Ilian. Bring him back. Maybe things would have turned out differently if Ilian hadn't died. I can't talk about it. <laughs> uh, remember when we thought that was going to be, like, an endgame? I thought that <laughs> was an endgame. He died next episode. How many times do I have to get my heart broken on this show before I learn not to do that? Um, without Octavia even saying a word here, it is like immediately clear how much she's changed. You know, the Octavia that we we used to know has always been so passionate in everything that she's done. And even after Lincoln died, when she went into like her really dark mindset, she was really more numb than emotionless. But in this scene, seeing that look on her face as she watches the fight, she is just like supremely unimpressed with what's going on. And she looks cold as ice. Like that that hardened, steely look in her eyes is something that we've never really quite seen from her before. So um, bring on episode two. You know, I, I am ready to see how Octavia became this new red queen, if you will. Yeah. And that, that's the end of the episode, guys. That's the end. First episode. Um, we have some general discussion topics that we wanted to talk to before we wrap this up. So without further ado, let's talk about our favorite scenes. Mine was... <laughs> I'm going to take the good one. Um, <laughs> my favorite scene was everything um, that happened between the moment that Clark followed the vulture into Eden and then discovered Shadow Valley was this incredible... Um, wonderful hippie land this worked both narratively and on a character level for me the sheer relief of Clark finding Eden was so palpable and real I had a visceral reaction to this I dare to find anyone who didn't on top of which finding out that not only does this oasis exist but it comes pre-outfitted with a hippie fairy tale village complete with the colorful decorations and a homey feel it's like the burrow of the hundred that was a harry potter reference <laughs> and i want to live here forever so yes this was my favorite scene um since brit took my favorite scene which really was like her discovering eden um my second favorite scene and there were like a couple that were kind of tied for my second but the one i chose was seeing raven and murphy interacting with each other um because their relationship has come so so far since season one and i i I really couldn't be any happier with where we've landed they they truly love each other and they are a family uh teasing and all and in fact out of all the friendships on this entire show this might become my new favorite so i i can't wait to see where the season takes them yeah i completely agree what was your favorite line my favorite line um was clark saying her little voiceover 
So what now? What becomes of the commander of death when there's no one left to kill? I guess we'll find out because my fight is over. The question is, who am I now? And I think this is opening up a really interesting theme of the season. I'm assuming for Clark, not necessarily for everyone, but just, you know, Clark has kind of gotten to like a, a po- not necessarily a post-guilt world, but in some ways I think she's come to terms with the fact that she has to be who she has to be to survive and protect people she loves. Um, And I think she's kind of okay with that at this point. And so figuring out who she is now that that she has become okay with the things that she has to do is a really interesting question to explore. Yeah, I think it's going to be the entire series that we'll take to answer that question. Probably. Yeah. But at least this season, for sure. I mean, like, I can't even begin. We'll we'll get there in a second. (laughs) What was your favorite line? My favorite line was uh, Raven turning to Ra- to uh, Murphy and saying, see this? It's a little cockroach playing violin as she like <laughs> twists her fingers together. It's so good. <laughs> I, they, I mean, you could not have put it better um, just a minute ago. Their relationship is everything. I love their interplay. I think that the writers just are so good at making these people feel real and making their relationships feel real. They remind me so much of my brother and my me. It's like a little scary. He was here for like a week, so Sarah can testify to that. Um, and they, they're just, their reactions to each other are so perfect and spot on that it's, it's I, I could watch them forever. I really could. A whole show of Memori and Mervin. Yeah, yeah. Let's just put Murphy, Raven, and Memori in like the entire show. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's talk about next week's episode. Yeah. So uh, next week, episode 502 is called Red Queen. Um, and just saying, some people will probably be losing their heads, either literally or metaphorically. Yeah. Heads will roll. And I think it's a safe bet that it will be literal decapitation. I mean, you know, when it comes to this show, literal violence is always the safe bet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, that was the season or sorry the episode recap but I do want to take a minute and talk about our overall season thoughts since this was the premiere so oh man the premiere (laughs) uh, yeah we are one of 12 one done (laughs) one of 13 one of 13 um one down 12 to go so I'm gonna turn it over to you this is your area of expertise do you have any sort of out there theories or predictions that you want to bring up now I do I'm glad you oh I'm shocked (laughs) Um, it's like I knew you wanted to talk about this. I, it's like you did. It's like I live with you. <laughs> um, I have one crackpot theory. That's a little bit crazy. I will start by saying that Jason Rothenberg and several other like cast members and, and things have all said that this season's finale is like nothing we've ever seen before. It's like bigger than anything they've ever done. And for me, I'm like, what, what the hell could it possibly what be? What else is there? What else is there? <laughs> I have to defend. So my one thing that I, you know, can't get out of my head and probably never will. We know later in this season that Bellamy and crew will stumble upon a whole ship full of cryogenetic their cryogenic freezing tanks. Um, my crackpot theory of the week, you know, I'll, I'll try to get one, like one in a week. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good goal. That's probably not going to happen. Let's reach for that goal. I, I probably won't do one a week because this is my, this might be my like overarching thing until I like find a, a more plausible theory. Mm-hmm. But anyway, my crackpot theory is that all of them, or at least a very large group of them are going to get in the cryogenic pods freeze themselves like maybe like they destroy Eden and aren't able to live there anymore and so they have to like wait until the earth is able to like regrow itself 
So they'll get in these pods, like set up for like a hundred years or whatever. Um, and then they'll end up waking up. Maybe something went wrong. They wake up like a thousand years later and then they have to like go down. Like things have been crazy changed. That That's like my one possibility of like, what could you do this bigger than what you've done before? And I'd say a thousand year time jump is pretty big. <laughs> she sent this to me at one thirty in the morning. <laughs> I just had like a spark of like, you know, like I just got really excited for a second about the possibility of like using those pods. She's been waiting for cryogenic tanks for five seasons. And when they showed up, she like flipped out. And then I just I love that concept of time travel without actually time traveling. I just think it's so interesting. And I I just is a nice insight to our like (laughs) daily lives. I just want you all to know you've come into our living room. This is what it looks like. Um, moving on. Moving on. Let's talk about Death Watch. Yeah, let's talk about the Death Watch. Who do we think is going to die this season? I think, this is me, I think and I hope and I cross my fingers that Jaha is going to die because I want him to not be on the show anymore. He irritates me and we're going to leave it at that. I also feel like at some point Kane or Abby might not make it, um, especially now that our generation of teenagers have all grown into formidable adults in their own right. There's just less and less need for adult figures on this show, so I feel like they might, one of them at least, might die. Yeah, um, I mean, on my death watch too is uh, Jaha, although I, I still feel like he's dying next episode, so that barely really even counts for me. Um, I also would agree, I think... Kane and or Abby will die but I I lean more toward Kane yeah but I'm still not I'm not quite sure about either of them um and I also have this weird sneaking suspicion that Octavia might die um because I I really don't know where she could possibly go after this season uh, especially since it sounds like she's gonna end up being the main villain um so you know I I think she brings in a perspective to the show that we don't see from anyone else Mm -hmm. and I like her relationship with Bellamy is always going to be a source of tension um, and therefore story so I I don't know if they would want to kill her because they would lose that perspective but at the same time I keep feeling like she's reaching the end point for herself you know well she's Um, she's not um evolving well she's De- well, evolving. She's evolving. She's just not evolving in the way that we had thought she would. She's evolving into a more d- destructive person. Yeah. Um, instead of a constructive. Person. Well, I will say to be fair, we should also save our um judgment until we actually like meet her this That's season. That's a good point. But let's, let's refrain. Let's. I'm. I'm. I, I am curious to see how her new role is going to to kind of come into play. Yeah. But um, my one other person on the Death Watch is possibly Harper because she's always on my death watch but I really am starting to care a little bit more about whether she lives or dies even in this like space of one episode so I hope it's not the case yeah they did a lot of good work with Harper this episode I don't feel like they would I I feel like there will be fewer deaths this season but like at least one big death I also don't know if they would do Harper because I feel like she is like the only to use a Westworld um reference she is Monty's cornerstone now yeah and they already stripped him of Jasper and I don't if they killed Harper I feel like they would have to have Monty be killed too I would agree with that and I don't think they're gonna kill Monty I don't think Monty could survive another one I don't think she could I don't think he could either I think he would I think he would give up. Yeah. And I don't I don't think that they are going to do two birds with one stone. So. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. All right. Um. So one last thing we wanted to touch on is some of our like most anticipated um, items in this season. What are you most, most looking forward to? Um, for me, uh, there are so many characters that I'm really excited to see more of this season. 
But I think my top two are Imori and Echo because we've already gotten some great insight into their dynamics and their relationships in this episode, but I really want to delve further into their depths. You know, they're both grounders. They're heading back to the ground for the first time in six years, but now the only real relationships they have are with Sky Crew. So, you know, where does that leave them? Where do they fit? These are questions that I am really excited to explore more in the season. Plus those girls are Banffs and they're great. And I want to see more. So true. (laughs) Me too. Um, my most anticipated characters for this season are, of course, the shipping, because I ship everything. Um, my number one ship is Zeke and Raven. So ready for Raven to have a satisfying and fulfilling, fulfilling romance. She deserves one so badly, and I'm really excited at Zeke. He's really hot. Um, the second is Mamori. We've covered this. I always loved Mamori, but this new dynamic is even more entertaining, if that's possible. And I hope they keep them like this um, for a while, because it's really fun to watch. And I will just say, as a general note, every single scene we've ever seen between Memori is gold. Like, from the very moment they met to now, they have such dynamic relationship on all fronts. And And the show does their relationship very well. Yeah. No matter if they're in a good place or a bad place. Agreed. All right. Well... That's our episode, guys. If you would like to get in contact with us, you can. You can email us at skycastcrew at gmail.com. That's S-K-A-I-C-A-S-T-K-R-U at gmail.com. You can also tweet at us at skycast. And you can also tweet at us at our own Twitter accounts at bperlman89. Uh, and me too, which I have a Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> that you, Twitter is at Sarah R. McCabe. You tweet more than I do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> so thank you for joining us on SkyCast. Until next week, guys. See ya. Bye. Bye.